2: W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. For the uninitiated, opera can seem scary. Luckily, the Atlanta opera dispels stereotype notions of stuffy or elitist entertainment. Today, we'll hear about the scope of Atleta Opera's current offerings, from live in-person performances of a comic classic to at-home streaming of a riveting drama in the soldier story Glory Denied. Plus, singers from the company have recorded special songs in their favorite venues around town as love letters to Atlanta. First, if you're not familiar with music by the great composer Gioacchino Rossini, you may well recognize this melody from the 1950s Bugs Bunny episode, The Rabbit of Seville. That is Looney Tunes send up and a brilliant one of Rossini's 1816 opera The Barber of Seville, The Atlanta Opera is performing this masterpiece of comic opera beginning March 5th at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center. Arthur Fagan is the Atlanta Opera Music Director, and he will conduct these performances. He joins me now via Zoom. Maestro, welcome back to City Lights.
1: Thanks very much. It's been two years. I can't believe it.
2: And I hope you don't mind me just beginning with the 800-pound gorilla, or in this case, rabbit, in the room in that reference to Bugs Bunny. Because, in fact, that's the way many of us first encountered music from the Barber of Seville.
1: Uh, yeah, I think you're giving away our age. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, we weren't here in
1: 1816. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Yes, I remember that well.
2: It's so clever.
1: And do you know that Orosini, the William Tell overture was also used... In the series The Lone Ranger.
2: Yes, I was going to include that, <laughs> but that's even older than me. I only saw that in reruns that my brother watched on Saturday afternoons. <music> It say about Rossini's ability to write melodies that these two works are iconic.
1: Well, it's the allegros from both both of these overtures which are, are most famous. Although the William Tell Overture has also a, a storm scene, it says that Rossini's music is extremely accessible, even to modern day audiences. And Barbara Seville was written in 1816. And it's not only the overture, but it's also the the largo alfactotum, the famous figural aria that is known to really has widespread popularity as well. <laughs>
2: I'm not going to do my books, Bunny. What qualities within this aria especially convey the lyrics and that moment within the drama or, in this case, within the comedy?
1: Well, you know, Figaro is first introduced to the public with the aria. He's not on stage beforehand and he comes out and he's, the guy who takes care of everything in town i mean he's officially the barber but he does all kinds of different things and he says people always want him figaro qui, figaro la everybody wants him and then he has a look at that so figaro 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 each time he says the figaro 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 about 10 times he's talking about somebody else always calling him <laughs> He's always in demand, he never gets empty rest. And he describes what he does in about a four-minute aria.
2: It's brilliant. Stephanie Laricella is making her Atlanta opera debut in the role of Rosina, the lead female role. Yes. Would you talk about her famous aria, Una voce poco fa, and what it reveals?
1: Well, she's talking in this aria about her two sides of her personality, she can be extremely sweet and ingratiating, but also she knows how to lay a trap and she can become, she says, Una vipera, which is like a snake. So, you know, it's like I could be really nice, but watch out, don't ever cross me.
3: Una voce poco fa, qui nel
2: And in fact, she is trying to set a little trap for her teacher here and the man who wants to marry her
1: it's her guardian, is Don Bartolo. Her guardian.
2: Yeah. So she's trying to finesse a situation here against her guardian's wishes in order to marry her true love, who is the Count Almaviva.
1: Except she doesn't know that he's Almaviva. She thinks he's a poor student named Lindoro. <laughs>
2: it's common for the lead female roles in opera, to be cast for sopranos, but Rossini composed Rossino's character as a lower-voiced mezzo-soprano.
1: That's right, and you know, it's not only in The Barber of Seville, it's also in Italian in Algeria. The Isabella is also a coloratura mezzo. However, this role has been sung countless times by sopranos, Maria Callas was a very famous Rosita who sang it in the original mezzo-soprano key of E major. However, when they give it to higher uh, sopranos who have very high registers and very fancy coloratura that go up even to a high F, like the Queen of the Night F, which just happens occasionally with high mezzos, the arias transposed a half-step higher.
2: So the mezzo for people who are not familiar with opera it is a duskier quality would you call it
1: that well yeah that's so normally is it has a slightly duskier voice than a soprano but in this case the mezzo has to do a lot of brilliant kind of ornamentation and flourishes
2: now artistic director tomers Vulun wanted to present works this season that are more light-hearted how does Barber fit into the overall scheme of this season's programming?
1: Well, I, the Barber is probably the most hysterically funny opera that exists. Really? <laughs> it's, it's as lighthearted as it gets.
2: Well, on the heels of the Pirates of Penzance, that's saying a lot.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would put the two in a similar category in terms of their lightheartedness.
2: So this is what we need in coming out of these dark just about 24 months that we've lived through.
1: Right. And we also don't I don't think we wanted to have this season an enormous orchestra in the pit and have so many people in such you know close quarters so we could we could spread out slightly in, in pieces like the Pirates of Julius Caesar and and the Barber of Seville.
2: And speaking of the pit what are some of the challenges and great opportunities for the orchestra playing music from the Barber of Seville.
1: There is extremely fast and extremely brilliant writing. It takes a great deal of virtuosity from the wind players and at times also from the string players. In terms of the actual pit, one of the issues with doing operas like this in a huge hall like the Cobb Energy Center, and many, many famous opera houses are of that size nowadays, is that the music was originally conceived for a much smaller theater. So the wind players are quite far under, sometimes even under the lip of the stage, and I sometimes feel like I have to conduct with one hand down for the for the, for the orchestra and with another hand down for the, for the singers. That's one of the problems. It's just a challenge, especially in, in an opera that has to be so is so fast paced and needs uh, great precision. The other thing is, you know, basically for the voices, I think we need bigger voices nowadays for operas of this genre, Mozart operas as well, when we are performing them in a very big hall. Because as I said before, you know, the, the halls for which these operas were originally conceived were much smaller. And also the orchestras, for example, if you listen to an Italian orchestra, generally the dynamic level of an Italian orchestra is not as strong as the dynamic level of, let's say, an American orchestra. And at the time of Rossini, these violins and all the string players, they played from gut strings, which had a much str- a warmer and softer quality than the metallic strings that we use in orchestras nowadays. It's quite different performing, let's say Mozart operas, Rossini, Donizetti operas uh, with modern day instruments in big halls than it was at the time they were written.
2: Speaking of Mozart, in some ways, The Barber of Seville is a prequel, if you will, to Mozart's Marriage of Figaro.
1: Exactly, although it was written 30 years later. Yes,
2: <laughs> but would you talk about the connection between the two?
1: Okay, both operas were based on a trilogy written by, I think, Pierre Caron de Beaumarchais. And the first story was. The Barber of Seville, in which Rosina is really a young, I would think a teenage girl, and Almaviva viva is a very, very young man in love with, with Rosina, and at the end of Barber of Seville they fall in love, and, you, and they fall in love already in the beginning. But by the end of the opera you know they're going to get married. Okay, so then we move on to The Marriage of Figaro, which is the second opera in the trilogy, although it was written by Mozart 30 years earlier. And there, Rosina is the countess, and she is married to the count. And that marriage isn't going too well.
2: No, sadly.
1: I mean, the count has a lot of dalliances, and Rosina is a little bit unhappy, and somewhat infatuated with Carabino. Anyway, there is a third opera in the trilogy. Well, it's not the opera, it's the third play. It's called La Mere Coupable, The Guilty Mother. And I know that there have been operas written on this subject. Many years ago, I did the opera The Ghost of Versailles by Corigliano, and he uses, within the opera of The Ghost of Versailles, scenes from La Merco Pablo.
2: Both give the orchestra fantastic overtures that stand on their own in any concert hall on any symphony program. So I imagine this score is among the favorites you get to perform and conduct.
1: Yeah, I'd like to say something about the overture. In the case of The Marriage of Figaro, the overture is in the key of the last finale. It conveys the spirit of The Marriage of Figaro, although it doesn't have any tunes from the opera itself. In the case of Barbara Seville, he wrote the entire opera apparently in three weeks. Amazing. And didn't have time to write a new overture for the Barbara Seville. So he stole one of the overtures that he'd previously written and used in two different operas, one a comic opera and the other a very serious opera, Elizabeth, Queen of England. So although the overture to the Barbara Seville in a way conveys the spirit of of the whole uh, opera, It doesn't contain any of the music from the opera.
2: It's an amazing story. And let's just say it worked. Yeah, it certainly did. Arthur Fagan, Atlanta Opera Music Director and Conductor of The Barber of Seville. The show begins Saturday at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center and runs through March 13th. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. In a moment, we'll continue our day at the opera with a couple of opportunities to watch the Atlanta Opera from the comfort of your own home. This is W.A.B.E. This is City Lights on W.A.B.E. I'm Lois Wright's Thank you for listening. Colonel Jim Thompson was America's longest-held prisoner of war, an Army Special Forces captain at the time, Thompson was captured in March of 1964, when the small plane he was riding in was shot down over Vietnam. He was held prisoner for the next nine years and released in March of 1973. Thompson's story, including the troubled life he led upon returning to the U.S., is told in Tom Philpott's book, Glory Denied, which was adapted to an opera created by Tom Cipullo. The Atlanta Opera had planned to perform Glory Denied in the spring of 2020, but the pandemic hit, quarantine followed, and the company decided to create a full recording and film, which were released this past Veterans Day. Joining us now via Zoom to talk about Glory Denied are the Atlanta Opera Artistic Director, Tomers Wouloun, and filmmaker, as well as co-director of the film, Felipe Barral. Welcome back to City Lights.
4: Thank you, Lois. It's great to be
0: back. Thank you. Great to be with you.
2: Tomer, what happened to Jim Thompson's life after he was released in March of 1973?
4: Well, he came back to uh, a country that he was away from for almost a decade. And that was a very busy decade where a lot of things happened, and not only in the world and in America, but also in his, in his family. Uh, he came back to a wife that at this point thought he died and uh, was already with another man. And he came back to a world that did not really embrace him as he believed uh, it should have. And it was a very difficult return uh, to what he thought would be a glorified return, uh, but it, that glory was denied of mm-hmm. him. And that's his story, and I find it to be a very, very powerful one. Yeah,
2: I mean, missing out on nine years itself is staggering. And the years Thompson was held captive, 1964 to 73, were radically different from the society he lived in before combat. What changes to America's way of life— do we learn about it in the opera?
4: Well, you know, there's actually a catalog aria in there when he actually goes through all the changes uh, that the world has seen and lists them from changes, political changes, to cultural changes, cinema, TV, music, people with long hair, drugs. Those were very tumultuous years. And coming back after being absent for so long is, I think, would be shocking, uh, especially considering the time period.
5: Teflon cook men with long hair, stapler shirts, mini skirts, disc brakes, eight-pack tapes, bucket seats, and wives who cheat. Youth culture, drug culture, culture shock, acid rock, wood stock in darkness, rock, coke, loot, hash pot, penthouse, hot Playboy with a beaver shot. Triple X movies,
3: feeling groovy. Central air, no school prayer. Be signs, gas lines, see-through blouses.
5: Lying spouses. Turn on, tune in, crop out. Welcome home.
2: I mean, just thinking about 64 to 73. The Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act... Mm-hmm the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, and then, as you mentioned, the rise of counterculture, free love. Vietnam, Nixon. of course, all of this. Speaking of Nixon, I was thinking about your thoughts about why this story is compelling as an opera. And I remember... In the 80s, when John Adams Nixon in China came out, Mm -hmm. thinking, what an odd choice for an opera. And yet that worked, and it's not so odd. But this story contains so many elements that have been essential to opera since it was invented. Why is this so compelling as an opera?
4: Well, first of all, Nixon in China is a masterpiece. And I think it's a masterpiece because it derives from historical events. But it, the libretto was written by Alice Goodman, who took it into such a surreal world that makes it so universal and so much deeper than just the history. Now, Glory Denied Night is a little bit different in that it's really a sort of a biopic of this, this person, Colonel Jim Thompson. But it's also very universal in that it tells us the stories of so many veterans that come back from kind of a, an odyssey and like a journey that is so difficult away from family, from the world as we know it. And then they come back and they don't fit in. They feel like they're outsiders. That's the quintessential universal story of veterans, whether they're here or elsewhere, uh, not just in this country. And I find that to be profoundly topical and deserves of, of telling. Chairman, we have
2: talked about this before on air. You served as a combat medic in the Israeli army and you have reached out to veterans Since you assumed the artistic leadership and general management of Atlanta Opera, you've also programmed other war-related operas in your tenure here. Does the fact that you served in the Army Make you feel more connected to this story despite the differences?
4: Sure. Sure, it is. I mean, there is something authentic about my experience and the way I connect to those stories. We started this initiative very early on when I arrived here with Soldier Songs and continue with Silent Night and with Glory Denied. And the reason that I find it so important is not only from the point of view of the veterans you know they all have stories that deserve to be told and they're not told often because typically veterans don't like to talk about their experience unless it's with another veteran but beyond their own experience i think the the piece that is so important for our society is the fact that so often their families and society at large don't completely understand or know what they've been through because it's difficult to talk about it and what those stories via books or operas or musicals or theater do is that they provide a platform a way for those veterans to share some of their experiences not only for themselves so that they feel a little lighter because it's a heavy burden but also for their families to understand what they've been through if you
2: are just joining us this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with the Atlanta Opera Artistic Director Tomer Wouloun and Felipe Barral, co-director of the film Glory Denied. The opera focuses on Thompson's relationship with his wife, Alice, Why do you think Chipolo chose to center the story around their relationship rather than what he endured while in captivity?
4: You know, the, the opera tells a combination of both. It's flashbacks into what he endured in captivity and this idyllic version of his wife and his family and his home in America. And I find it to be so powerful because we all have a part of us that embraces nostalgia and takes reality and puts a lens that makes it much more optimistic and sweet than it really is. And in this case, that version that he made is actually shattered when he actually comes back and confronted with the actual reality. His imagination has nothing to do with the actual reality, and it's devastating. Felipe,
2: this is not your first collaboration with the Atlanta Opera. What can you tell us about the film, my darling Jim?
0: Well, you know, it's, it's fascinating to collaborate with Tomer and create things together because, you know, we kind of bounce ideas, and, and, it's, and it's great to bring sort of that theatricality and operatic vision into a, a film format that I really love. And this story really lends itself to what Thomas was saying before, you know, uh, even if you don't have a military background or you don't have a, uh, an experience with that in your family, it's a human story and it's very relatable when you go through any drama and you come back from a journey that took you somewhere and you lose things on the way and people you love before they change and relationships change. So you can find all of those stories that are very human and relatable for any kind of people. And I think what was fascinating to to focus on the short film was also the the wife, you know, what young Alice was in all Thompson's, you know, vision or idea or dream, and what was the reality and how that changed. And the treatment that we wanted to do as well was sort of taken into a combination of, you know, real footage with a little bit of texturized colors, you know, to bring different worlds and bring you into his mind, feel what he's feeling, and make you at the end feel something as well, which is the ultimate goal that I also like to bring, not only just bring beauty in the in the content, but also make you feel something. And I think when you ended up watching the film and you feel the heartbreak, right? And and the hopes maybe that were broken, the love that got distance, you know, in the relationship, and the hardship of the war and the drama of that horrific experience, that's the ultimate goal, right? And and what is interesting also is that this is a film. That we're doing that is not based on any live production in this case, because we were doing it on location, filming in different places, including the Atlanta Botanical Garden, our green screen at the Atlanta Opera. And so it brings another dimension of what we think opera and film can be uh, with this project.
2: How are three of the operas' arias? woven into a single piece of music. I mean, you had to distill the operas. Is that correct, Tomer?
4: That is correct. We wanted to create a shorter version. The opera itself lasts about 90 minutes. And we wanted to create a, a version that would last under 20 minutes. And so we created an abridged version that introduces us to this world. It's, it happens as a flashback in the mind of Colonel Jim Thompson after he, after he returns from captivity. And he has moments where he remembers what he's been through in, in Vietnam. And he remembers the version of his wife, the Norman Rockwell version of his wife that he has in his mind. And then it moves into the time that he's in and this catalog aria where he lists all the things that happened in the nine years that he's been away. And we talked about some of those already from Vietnam to Nixon to Martin Luther King. And uh, it ends with this wonderful apparition of the, the sweet version of his wife, Alice, singing My Darling Jim, this beautiful aria that ends this film. And probably that's the end of his life. It's like a one last moment before he passes.
3: The day was gorgeous outside, temperature in the 40s.
2: Is it the first recording that features full orchestration? Is that correct?
4: That's correct. I mean, there is another recording that happened about a decade ago that has uh, eight instruments, but we wanted to um, have a version that will include the full orchestra that Tom wrote. And uh, it's the first time, actually, that the Atlanta Opera Orchestra came together uh, after the pandemic, uh, and we recorded it in summer of 2021. It was very special because they did play together uh, during the, the tent performances, but that was reduced orchestrations and in a tent environment, and this was an acoustically pristine environment where we were able to capture the beautiful playing.
2: I read that you were especially excited about the conductor as well. What can you tell us about the conductor?
4: Oh, she's phenomenal. Nicole Paymond, who was here uh, for Silent Night, back in 2016, and I've been looking for opportunities to bring her uh, again and again. Uh, she is the Artistic Director of San Francisco Opera Parley uh, and a frequent collaborator of mine. We, we've we done shows in Washington National Opera and Glimmerglass, and I think she's phenomenal, especially with new works, and she did a tremendous work with the orchestra on this specific piece. The title
2: of the opera and the book on which it was based just stunningly conveys what Colonel Thompson experienced when returning home. How does telling this story restore the glory he was not awarded after his release?
4: You know, it's a really loaded question. And, you know, I have a very strong opinion about it as somebody who's been through it. And I don't find glory in it. Honestly, I I think it's so difficult to go through what Colin and Jim Thompson went through and what many other veterans are going through. And I don't know if there's a lot of glory when you come back. There should be. I wish there was more, but I don't know that there's a lot of glory. And what you see in this in this book by Tom Filippo and the the opera is that you come back and, and it's not always how you left it. You lost a lot on the way, you gave a lot. And when you come back, it's not always what you expect it to be. So perhaps
2: respect
4: denied would be more appropriate? Yeah, in his case, certainly. I think respect is more simple than glory. But in many cases, even that is denied of of those people. And I think his story is a a cautionary tale and a window into the world of people whose stories deserve to be told.
2: Atlanta Opera Artistic Director Termers Vouloun with filmmaker and director Felipe Baral. The recording of Glory Denied is available on Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, and Amazon for downloading or streaming. The short film is available on Atlanta Opera's streaming platform, Spotlight Media. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org citylights. Coming up, We'll find out how you can hear world renowned opera singers performing love letters to our city. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE, I'm Lois Reitzes, thank you for being here. Last year, the Atlanta Opera created a series called Love Letters to Atlanta. The recorded videos feature the company's ensemble of internationally renowned artists performing their favorite songs in places significant to Atlanta's musical history. Director Felipe Barral, whom we just heard discussing the film Glory Denied, was at the helm for this project as well. When he and the internationally celebrated bass baritone Morris Robinson joined me last year to share details, Robinson began by explaining why he chose to set his love letter at the Fox Theater. It's a
5: historic, iconic site in Atlanta. It is something from my childhood that I remember talking about and passing by all the time with curiosity because it just had all these wonderful lights and it looked so beautiful from the outside. It's one of the first stages I performed on as a kid, about 12 years old. I was in the Sydney Marcus campaign oh show. And I, uh, you remember that?
2: Yeah, I and do. I- <laughs>
5: I would hear my sisters actually saying it's a hard-knock life uh, from Annie. And we came out of the trash cans downstage right. And it was my first time I was on stage. I was actually a soprano then. That's how long ago it was. Oh, my yeah. goodness.
2: Oh, that is so hard to imagine. You are the basso profundo of all time. And well, <laughs> once you had a high voice.
5: You know, I actually have a high voice now, but that's a whole different topic to discuss. But I chose that place because of all the nostalgic memories I have there with my family, with my sisters being on that stage. And the one song that I chose to sing has ties to that very show and that very stage, The Impossible Dream from Anna La Mancha. One, because I remember being on stage and that show, that song was the ultimate number, the climax of the show, so to speak. And I remember listening to the baritone scene that and thinking, wow, this is just an amazing song and an amazing voice. And he just stands on stage and commands it and takes control and... I just felt like he was very powerful. I felt like the song was very powerful. So I memorized it from listening to him. And when I auditioned for a high school performing arts with Billy Densmore at Northside, my mother made me audition for him. And that's the song that I chose. Going full circle, I ended up seeing that very song at my high school graduation at the Atlanta Civic Center. So there are lots of memories in Atlanta, lots of uh, nostalgia related to that song. And my story, and as it was written, and as it has developed over my life it's really an impossible dream so i felt like it was the most appropriate thing to do yeah.
3: to
2: letter opens with the Atlanta Opera Artistic director Tomer Svaloon in conversation with this singer. What does this layer add to the viewer's experience?
5: I think for me, my interpretation of what it adds is that Tomer, because I don't know why he has these instincts, but maybe it's because he's a director. He's a storyteller. And he knew exactly where to go with me. He knew exactly what questions to ask. He knew exactly what buttons to push to bring out the emotional reaction in me. He was very good at this. I was actually in shock at how good he was at at hosting this. You know, and he has a vision. And I think that his vision of what he wants to present, what he wants to do with the community, with the opera company, connecting it to various communities within our Atlanta metropolitan area. I think he tailors every last discussion to fit into that narrative, such that it comes across as very convincing and very authentic. The authenticity comes through in it. So I think that's what he brings to it. And I think that because he's doing it, because he's the visionary, because he's the, the main guy at Atlanta Opera, I think it adds more validity to the, to the story that's being told. What do you think, Frivo?
0: Yeah, I, no, I, I agree with you. And I think also, you know, the whole idea is to, to really showcase, you know, not just a song, it's not just a music video, you know, shot in a, in a beautiful location. It's about people. And it's about the human connection and it's about knowing the artist beyond the songs as well. And, and Thomas obviously, you know, knows that and understand that and he has a good way, like you were saying, Maurice, to to kind of go where you need to go to to create a space where you can feel safe about talking about multiple things and then express that. Um, so I think the, the layer that we want to bring into that as well is that let us you know, share with you, not only the love for the city and the iconic places, but let us show you these great singers, these great people and, and make a, a human connection through the screen around these beautiful videos. Yeah. And
2: Morris, your story is deeply personal and quite emotional. I cannot urge listeners enough to check this out. Regarding the Atlanta Opera's Love letters series, Felipe, how do the singers, as well as their songs, determine what we ultimately see on screen?
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. It's interesting because, you know, obviously knowing ahead of time, we know what is the song and we know who is the singer that is going to be there. And so we can envision how we want to capture this specifically for each song. And in this case, you know, in the first three love letters that we have, we have two of them being filmed at the Fox Theater. So to me, it was very important to not repeat the same thing, the same look. And even though the location is the same, how we can capture it in a way that represents more of the singer and the song into the video. And so when people see both, you know, of these two videos, uh, one with Morris and one with Jamie Barton, at uh, the Fox Theater, you will see that they, are, they look different, even though it's the same location. But the idea was really to bring the meaning of the stories that Maurice is telling, you know, how we can translate that into the way we're gonna film this. And, and therefore, you know, when we see Maurice walking through the Fox Theater you know, and, and, and talking about your mom, uh, Maurice, and, and talking about you know, all, all the other things, we wanted to kind of capture it in a very beautiful way. And then when you're on stage and and we have Rolando Salazar as well you know playing the piano with you and he obviously you know it's it's, it's one of the conductors at at the opera and pianist you know the idea was to really bring you in this intimate setting and and I think that that intimacy also is part of something that I was looking for by filming this because we are in this incredible location that has a lot of meaning for Atlantans but we're there alone (laughs) it's just us there's nobody in the audience So we have a beautiful setting and nobody's hearing but us. And so we wanted to capture it in an intimate way because we are bringing you the audience through uh, the lens of the camera to be with us in that very special moment where you're alone in the Fox Theater.
2: And I have to say it attests to the power of Morris's art and your... Capturing the visual aspect of it—that empty Fox Theater and that capacious stage—feel intimate while Morris is singing. <laughs>
0: How is that possible? <laughs> uh, well, you know that's the magic of what we do, right? Uh, but I think, I think you know so. uh, the, the important thing, and I remember you know, and Morris, you know, you were so great when we filmed as well because. You know, I needed to move from places to places within the theater to reset the cameras and be right up there in the last row of the seats, or be right in front of the stage, and that takes time, right? But you know, in order to do it, we were all committed into what we wanted to do and capturing it in this beautiful way, and sort of think about how we can do this as well when we are we we have the possibility, for instance, to be on stage, to be really close to Maurice, and to go around Maurice and sort of start bringing this character, which is the Fox itself, into the equation and how everything is gonna look sort of amazing on camera. So I think you know the combination of, of really showcasing how far can we, we can be from the stage, and we know people are not there with us, so they are far away, and that's kind of a metaphor. But then we are really close to Morris, and that is also a metaphor that we're bringing the audience with us to be right there. Typically, if you're sitting on the, on the Fox, or in any theater, you will not be that close to Maurice. <laughs> no,
2: no. Maurice, speaking of not being very close, you are with us now from Munich. At this moment, are you working in Germany?
5: I am, actually. I am i can't talk a lot about the project, but I am shooting a movie over here.
2: Oh, my. It
5: is, <laughs> it's a movie, and uh, it actually is an, a movie, about an opera but it's not a musical version there is more acting and not a lot of singing it's really beautifully done so far we have been ta- been doing table readings i did my one half of an aria in the studio <laughs> yesterday so uh, you know i'm a singer I'm an, I'm an opera singer so you know we strive for perfection i i went in on day 2 i was still tired and i sang through the aria i actually got the translation at the uh, reading sang through it went home lost sleep and called in the next morning and said, can I please come in and re-record the last nine notes? So I spent time doing that, but yeah, I'm here working on a project and shooting a movie and yeah, I'm staying busy. I'm very blessed to have this opportunity to work, especially during the times where, you know, most of our theaters are closed in America. So yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. That
2: that sounds thrilling. Now is the film in English?
5: Yeah, the film is actually in English, but there's going to be a German overdub with the, uh, dialogue and i believe that i'm going to sing the german versions of these arias uh when the overdub happens for that too so i'm pretty excited about that
2: oh i can't wait to hear more about this <laughs>
5: I'll, I'll just say it's going to be deutsche gramophone uh for the for the soundtrack and the movie is the magic flute oh. that's all i can say
2: oh my <laughs> goodness so yeah it has been what maybe 45 or more years since Ingmar Bergman's Magic Flute. This, yours will be the 21st century version.
5: Yeah, it's gonna be really cool. Yep. Oh,
2: Morris meets Mozart in Munich. Does (laughs) it get any better?
5: And I used to work for three M's. That's a three M, see? Morris, Munich, and Mozart. So. I'm
2: telling you, there, alliteration is always there. Welcome. you go. What has been the silver lining in this pandemic in terms of opera and how we experience it online? This is for each of you.
5: In terms of opera, this presentation is it's twofold. First, I think that life will find a way to continue, right, regardless of what happens. And I think the way that we present our art right now, the way we communicate is a different way, but it's a way that the art is surviving despite the circumstances. It's proven that it is, it has fortitude and it has will and it has staying power and it's happening even though it's very, very difficult to pull it off. The other part of it is, however is that in, a, in our best efforts to make sure that it reaches everyone and still thrives and still grows, it makes us even more and more hungry and long, even more and more for the real thing in person and live. So I think while we've wet the appetite and, and satisfied the, the desire to a degree, to a degree, it has only created even more and more of a desire for us to get back on stage and give all of us get a chance to experience that real magic in person, Right there live and in color. So I think it's that's what I would call the silver lining for it as far as the operator presentation goes.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And I think you know the silver lining for me as well is to to really put a light on how the screens really that we are so used to now and we carry with us, how that can be really the window that can connect us. Filmmaker and
2: Atlanta opera film director Felipe Barral with the internationally acclaimed bass baritone Morris Robinson. More information about how to stream Love Letters to Atlanta is available on our website, wabe.org citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m. Who is Kennesaw State University senior Raymond Goslow? The Jeopardy! National College Championship finalist shares behind-the-scenes stories from his time on the show Plus, an Atlanta-based Facebook group that offered virtual house concerts during the pandemic brings their community together in person for the first Kimono My House music festival. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drones. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE atlat
3: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews
2: with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired?